I know you're probably saying, you know, man, Pastor Bill got way better looking since Easter. Uh, so if you're here for the first time, I'm uh, a friend of, of your pastors. Kind of consider me Uncle Marcus, I guess, uh, or the pinch hitter. So if you don't like today's message, come back next week for the real thing. So I'm going to fill in for your pastor for just a little bit. Um, he's one of my heroes, him and Jessica, his wife truly are heroes of ours. There's not a human being on the planet that's helped Seven Hills. I pastor right outside of Cincinnati more than your pastor, more than this church, more than you guys. Just to look at you means so much because of how much I hear about you, how much we talk about you. And um, so, so we love you and uh, honored to be here with you today. If you've got your Bibles from it, it's been 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'll get there in just a minute. I want to talk to you about, uh, I want to be in on it. I want to be in on it. A couple years ago, I uh, was on an airplane from L.A. to Detroit, and I sat down by a girl that had a prosthetic leg. We start talking, and I find out that she's a triathlete, um, not just any triathlete. She competes at a high level. Uh, her dream is to be a world champion, and she was in the L.A. area, actually San Diego, getting sized for a very specific type of bike. Uh, a bike that she would have to have in order to compete at the level that she was wanting to compete at. And so we're talking about, you know, if you want to kind of get into my world, if you want to talk about dreams, goals, uh, being an achiever, if you want to talk about uh, overcoming the odds, overcoming setbacks, of you training, working out, I love that kind of stuff. So she's got me in the palm of her hand. I'm asking her, well, did you get your bike? And she's like, no. I'm in college, bike costs like $5,000. I wasn't able to get it. And so we just keep talking about, you know, different things for a couple hours. I mean, we're on this long flight uh, back and forth. And I finally end up asking her, I'm like, hey, if you don't mind me asking, uh, you know, what happened to, to your leg? And she says, well, when I was uh, a young girl, I had cancer in my foot. And through going back and forth to the hospital with my family, at one point, she's like, I don't know what happened, but uh, I guess it became too much on them, and they dropped me off for my treatment and for an operation, and they never came back. They, they, they abandoned me. She said, because of that, um, I didn't have anybody looking out for me. I was in the foster care system, and who wants a foster child that's got cancer? And she says, so I didn't have anybody looking out for how rapidly it was spreading, and being moved from home to home, it ended up moving into my hip. And she says, by the time they caught it all, I lost my whole leg and even most of her hip. So her prosthetic was, was her entire leg and her hip. And, you know, we keep talking about, you know, different things um, for, for a little while. And uh, I had been on a preaching run at about five or six different places. And... You know, I had a bunch of different honorariums uh, in this envelope, and I feel like the Holy Spirit puts on my heart to buy that bike, and I have about exactly what I need to buy that bike. Now, just in case you want to know, I never have this kind of cash on me. I never have this kind of money on me. If you were to say right now, Marcus, hey, can you buy me a Coke? I need a dollar. I'd be like, I'm sorry, I, don't, I can't help you. So, so this never happens. It was a rare instance, and I 
immediately start arguing with God. You know, I immediately start saying, well, you know, yeah, I have to be in unity with my wife and my wife doesn't know about it. I can't call her. I'm on a, I'm on a flight and I'm fighting God. I'm like, no, there's no way I'm giving a stranger $5,000. I don't even give my wife $5,000. I'm not giving a stranger $5,000. So I start negotiating with God. Like maybe he wants me to give her like a hundred bucks. You know, like that would be a big deal. A stranger gives you a hundred dollars. Come on. Anybody be like, yeah, you can do that. Like, that's, a, that's pretty incredible. And so for like two more hours, I'm just like arguing with God in my mind. And I avoided the whole time the question concerning what I do. I talked about my family. I talked about training. I talked about working out, talked about where I was. We talked about a ton of things, but I wouldn't tell her that I was a pastor because the second you tell somebody you're a pastor on a flight, everything gets weird. So I made a decision. (laughs) But we're descending, and she asked me if I'm on Instagram. I'm like, yeah, I am. She's like, well, why don't we follow each other? And she's like, we can keep up with each other. And I know now that she's going to go on my Instagram, and she's going to see that, that I'm a preacher. And so I, I decide I need to go ahead and tell her, you know, hey, you know, I, I'm a pastor. And sure enough, it gets weird, right? <laughs> she's cold. She doesn't want to talk. She's kind of distant. And so I ask her, I'm like, did I say something wrong? And she says, I'm, I'm an atheist. And now I'm kind of like, God, see, I told you, you. I don't see any Bible verse about giving $5,000 to an atheist. So must have been Satan, right? Speaking in my ear about that. And so I, I leaned over to her. Her name was Michaela. I said, Michaela, um, I'm like, you know, you, you have to understand, you know, I just really enjoyed our conversation today. You inspire me, you know, your desire to overcome the setbacks, uh, to not let what's happened to you keep you back from doing great things in life. And I said, to be honest with you, hearing about what happened to you as a young girl, being in the hospital, going through cancer, going through all those operations, going through all that chemo, having no family, being tossed around, no one to love you, no one to nurture you, no one to care for you. So honestly, I said, I'd be an atheist too. I said, so I'm good. I just wanna be your friend. I don't need anything from you. I'm not trying to convert you. Uh, I just really want you to know I'm gonna cheer you on towards this dream. And so I have an envelope that was one of the places I spoke in LA, the Dream Center. And I just thought the Dream Center was just so so unique to that situation. So I wrote a note on the front of the envelope and I put the $5,000 in there. And we're getting off the airplane. We're about to part ways. And uh, I hand her the envelope. And that was it. Just, hey man, it's great talking to you. Check this out later. She ends up messaging me on Instagram saying, I can't believe that you did this please take it back. And I told her, I'm like, I'll never take it back. This is yours. I was supposed to give it to you. Go fulfill your dreams. Get your bike. And she sends me pictures of her bike. She, over years, starts to post the races she was in and how she was competing. And I'm always commenting on her different things. And at one point, she actually even says, when I win the world championship, I'm going to come to your church. I'm going to tell your church what you did for me. I'm going to come to your church. And and I was like, that'd be great, Michaela, man. We'd love, we we would, we would love to have you. 
And several months ago, I get this message from her uh, to call her, and she gives me her phone number. And I'm like, of course, I'll call you. would love to catch up with you. A couple weeks went by. I totally forgot, just busy with church stuff like we are. And she messages me back, and she says, hey, I got a new phone. I thought maybe you tried to call, and you called my old number. Here's my new number. Um, I'd, I'd really like to hear from you. And I said, man, absolutely I'll call you. And I would love to be up here today starting out this sermon saying, man, I was super Christian, right? You know, like I did all that stuff you just heard about that you just clapped about, right? And that I called her and that she says, man, that changed my life forever. And that she says, I've been listening to your preaching and it's so good. Like nobody's as good as you kind of conversation, right? Like <laughs> you, you changed my perspective about God and life. And I would love to say that that, that phone call happened. But I never called her. I was busy with church. And I'm scrolling through my Instagram feed and I see this post that they're gonna put up on the screen. And she's sitting there next to the bike that I bought her. And I read, unbeknownst to me, that she was reaching out to me twice on her deathbed. On her deathbed, she wants to talk to a stranger she met on an airplane. And I was too busy with church stuff. And I read that, man, and it broke my heart. I realized with God, man, I had some things that were wrong. I had to repent. I was so focused on something like making sure the lights were in the right place, something that has to do with building a big church, probably something connected to things that mean nothing. God handed this girl to me on a silver platter on her deathbed. She wants to talk. Of all the people she could talk to, she wants to talk to me. And I didn't have the time to pick up the phone and call her. Now, you might be hearing you might say, Pastor, don't be so hard on yourself. I bet that did help her. I bet that did touch her heart. I bet she did get right with God. Okay, great. But maybe, maybe, She entered eternity, never knowing the love, never knowing the grace of God. Maybe. She's eternally separated from God because I was busy with church stuff. So I feel like God sent me here to maybe ask you a question that we'll kind of walk through for a little bit today. And that is, do you believe that God calls you to a church Or do you believe that God has called you to a community? It's important because if you believe God's called you to a church, then the ending point is right here. You fulfilled it. You did it. Good job. Awesome. But if God's called you to a community, which is the bottom line for a church, a church isn't called to itself. A church is called to go, right, into the world. Then this is is the starting point. This is the beginning point. We're about to get off and go, into the, go to the races. This is, this is where we're supposed to go. Did you know that 53% of the people that aren't here today, 53% of the people that aren't in a church will never walk through the doors of a church? The stats are done. 53% will never, never, never come to a church. 53%. So their only hope, if we believe there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, if we believe that, their only hope 
is that we're not going to say in here that this isn't our ending point, that this isn't what we're our final calling, that we'll actually go out there. And because you and I are in their neighborhoods, you and I are in their workplaces, in their high school, in their colleges, in their airplanes, because we're there, maybe, maybe there's hope for them. And Paul gives us a blueprint on how we're supposed to do this, how you and I are supposed to go into the world. And so we'll start looking in verse 9, 1 Corinthians. I'm reading from the Message Bible. It just makes it kind of cool. Everybody doing okay? Say uh uh-huh. Even though I am free from the demands and expectations of everyone, I voluntarily become a servant to any and to all in order to reach a wide range of people. The religious, the non-religious, the meticulous moralists, loose living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world. I tried to experience things from their point of view. I become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did it all because of the message. I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. I wanted to be in on it. So seven thoughts, seven thoughts. Seven thoughts on loving lost people. First thing he says is he says, I'm free from the demands and expectations of everybody. I voluntarily became a servant. No one pressured me. No one required this of me. Nobody twisted my arm. I voluntarily became a servant. I voluntarily, what was Paul saying? Paul was saying, when I went out into the world, I sought ways to add value to people. The number one thing, if we're, if we're not called to a church, if we're called out there, yes, we're to add value here. Yes, the value that you add here is important. It's not either or, it's both and. But when we go out there, the same mindset that we should have to add value in here, we should be going out there saying, how can I add value to people? Every single day, looking, searching, seeking for the people that I'm going to come in contact with, how can I add value? How can I in some way serve them? With Michaela, for example, I just... I just you don't have to give somebody five grand, y'all get it, but you do have to be saying, when I go out there, how can I add value to people? It's so simple to add value to people. If you just did the basics, like showed up a little bit early to work, stayed a little bit late, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but I'm saying if you did something like rare, like keep your word, do what you say, follow through, like that alone would be like crazy stuff in most situations. When, when you're in any situation, Your mindset is, how can I add value? I don't want to subtract from your life. I don't want to take from your life. There's no strings attached. I'm not looking to get anything out of this. This isn't an angle to hopefully someday get you in church. No, this is us saying, we're not talking about inviting somebody to church. That's wonderful. That's great. I'm saying, I know there's 53% of the people out there never going to come in here. And my job is to tell myself when I go out there, how can I add value to them? How can I add value to them? How can I add something to their life? Paul goes on to say, number two, that I did all of this to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralist, loose living, immoralist, the defeated, the demoralized, who 
whoever. Everybody say whoever. Isn't that what the Bible says? That for God so loved the world, that whoever. Doesn't whoever mean for whoever? So he says, listen, I'm, I'm not talking about the specific group of people that you should be adding value to, you know, the ones that you agree with, the ones that you like. No, he's like the immoralist, the loose living, the non-religious, the meticulous, the demoralized, the defeat. He's like, whoever, whoever. Everybody say this with me. Say, God loves me. God loves now look at the person next to you. Say, God loves you. Say, not as much as me, but, but he, he's all right with you. Now say, God loves them. You know, them out there, you know, the, them. Now say this, say, God loves people I don't like. You know, the people you, you, you pray for when you're alone that God would kill? I mean, nothing drastic, you know, just real quick. Just help me out, Lord. Whoever. Second thing Paul says is you have to, if you're going to do this, if you're going to be in on it, you have to include everybody. You have to include everybody. Even the people you don't like, even the people you don't agree with, even the people whose agenda, who their pursuits, the things that they stand for are completely opposed to everything you believe, everything you stand for. Paul's like, hey, listen, this is whoever. Include everyone. You know what we do? We go out and we look for the 1% that we disagree with, with someone. And then we give that 110% of our effort. When what Jesus did, if you study him, he was going out with people who he completely disagreed with, stood for nothing that he stood for, lived a life that was completely opposed, completely opposite than what he stood for, what he believed, but he would find something as basic like we're both hungry, so can we eat together? It didn't matter if they were an adulteress. He would grab water with them. It didn't matter if they were a cheat and a crook. He would grab dinner with them. He looked for the 1% he had in common. And then he gave that 110% of his effort. He went out saying, I'm going to include everyone I possibly can. I think it's important that we live, if we're going to be in on it, saying to ourselves, whoever, include everyone, no limits, not holding back, not saying I'll be for you, but not for you. Isn't it how God changes us? He changes us by accepting us first. Think about it. He didn't say if you'll change everything, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you a shot. He accepts you just like you are. You, could, you come just like you are. You don't, he don't expect you to clean it up before you come to him. He's like, just come. Whatever it is, the mess that you are, all the messed up stuff that's going on, just come just like that. I want you just like that. Whoever. He goes on to say, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. So number three, Paul knew who he was in Christ. It's not like he put his morals in neutral. It's not like he didn't have standards. It's not like he didn't have convictions. He had all that stuff. But he knew who he was in Christ. He wasn't worried about all the worldliness and sin on them getting on him. It wasn't like it was contagious, like he could catch it. 
He says, I went into their world, which is number, th- uh, no, number four. Is he knew who he was, or number three, he knew who he was in Christ, so he went into their world, but he didn't worry about whether or not they were in agreement or living the way he was living. He did what he could do to reach them. He didn't have to be like them to reach them, but he did have to like them. We should be so confident in Christ, we should know that we can go into their world and not lose who we are. I don't have to lose my standards to care for you. Every single day, we should be out there looking for people who are looking for God. And by the way, that 53%, they're looking for God. Michaela, she was looking for God. She didn't know. I knew exactly what she was doing. I knew why she was competing. I knew why she was up at five in the morning training so hard. I knew why she had this dream to be this world champion. I knew exactly why, because she in her mind believed if she could just somehow hold up that World Cup, if she could just somehow be the champion, be the best, that it would be sending a message back to her parents that dropped her off at that hospital and left her there to die. It'd be sending them a message that they were wrong. They made a mistake. It would be sending everybody a message that marginalized her because of her prosthetic leg, that she was was bigger than that thing that she looked. She was, she was wanting acceptance, approval, affirmation, and she thought if I could just, and I knew, I knew that even if she did hold up that championship trophy one day, I knew that that hole in her heart wouldn't be filled. And people out there, they're looking for God. They're looking for God in, in success. They're looking for God in achievement and accomplishment. They're looking for God putting the needle in their arm, some kind of drug, some kind of this, some kind of that. And we think, of, we, we go out there and we're like, oh, I can't believe. No, you don't have to be in any way intimidated by that stuff. Everything that you see that many times is completely against what you believe, it should just be sending a message that they're looking for God. And if you and I make a decision to say, when I leave here today, Every single day, God, I want you to send me to people that are looking for you. You'd be blown away how many people you would find that are looking for him. Next thing he says, he says, but I entered their world. I entered their world. Number four, you have to enter their world. Jesus, the Bible says, he went into the city of Jerusalem. He saw them, and then he was moved with compassion. Notice Jesus' model. He went, he saw, and he was moved. You have to enter their world. You have to be moved with compassion. The reason we've lost compassion for lost people, the reason our hearts don't break for lost people anymore, is because we're not in their world anymore. We left their world. Church was our way of escaping their world. And in our minds, this is the goal. But in Jesus' mind, he went, he saw, and he was moved with compassion. Not he came to church, heard a sermon, and then that was the end. No, he went, he saw, and he was moved with compassion. The reason we're not moved with compassion, the reason we could hear Michaela's story, the reason we could hear, why? Because we're moved with compassion because I actually entered her world. I went into the, all the gritty details of her world. And now today, we, because of that, we saw, and I'm guessing most of us were moved at some level with compassion. So we have to enter their world. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. You don't have to go to seminary to enter their world. You just have to be willing to say, 
I'm going to find the 1% of what I do agree with and enter their world. Next week, you guys start a series on unicorns and rainbows, unibros. (laughs) Unicorns and rainbows, rainbows, and uh, rainbows, rainbows. What is it? I can't even think about the word now, rainbows. (laughs) And, you know, the truth is, out there, they think that that's what this is. Unicorns and rainbows. And when you get an invite on your way out, if you're not careful, you think that that's what your pastor in this church is asking you to do, is go invite somebody. But that invite is actually reminding us, hey, we're being sent into a world where people are hurting, struggling, going through divorce, going through bad doctor's reports, facing impossible odds. And our job is to go and enter their world, enter their pain, enter their situation. Again, yeah, maybe it'll happen that they come to church, but maybe it will never happen. But that doesn't in any way release us from taking responsibility for the fact that we're the ones in their world. We're the ones that God has put there. As a matter of fact, maybe we're the only ones that they'll ever hear from. Maybe, maybe we're the only ones they'll ever know, and we've been placed there. We've entered their world, and as a result, we have an opportunity to show the love of God to them. Number five, he goes on to say, I experience things from their point of view. I experience things from their point of view. In Ezekiel chapter three, the prophet Ezekiel has this this vision. I mean, he has such spectacular visions that for thousands of years, for thousands of years, people talk about Ezekiel's visions. And he was looking at the sin of his nation. He was looking at the sin of the people that were around him. And the Bible says that he was embittered in his spirit, that he was heated in his spirits, which means angry. So he had these visions. He had all these things he wanted to say to people because he saw their rebellion against God. He was so mad, he was so angry, he just couldn't wait to tell them how God was just gonna deal with them. And God said, don't talk to him. Don't open your mouth, don't preach a sermon. As a matter of fact, before you ever say anything, I want you to go sit down by the River Chabar, which is a business district. And for seven days, I want you to sit there. I don't want you to say anything. I don't want you to quote any scriptures. I don't want you to tell anybody any visions, no sermons. Just sit there. The Bible says that God actually told them, go sit where they sit. Day one, day two, day three, day four. And before you know it, he's not angry anymore. He's not embittered anymore. He's not heated anymore. He's got the same visions from God. He's, he knows God is not pleased with the sin in people's lives. But instead now, he's being moved with compassion. And after seven days, his heart breaks for them. Why? Because he went and he sat where they sat. He entered their world and he took on their view. And once he saw with Michaela, I knew why she was an atheist. I got it. I made, made total sense to me. I saw things from her perspective. You know, people out there, they think God's mad at them. They think God's angry at them. You want to know why? Because they met a bunch of Ezekiels before we went and sat where they sat. You know what I'm, come on, you know them, the angry, mad, 
mean-spirited, judgmental Christians? Do they painted this view of God? You know who they are, right? And when we get to heaven, we're going to ask God to put them on the other side of heaven, those ones, right? <laughs> and so they have a wrong picture of God. They, they, they think God is upset with them when we know it's just the opposite. God's not up there just waiting so he can send them to hell. It's just the opposite. God is doing everything he can possible to make it hard for them to go to hell. That's what Jesus is about. He came. He loved the world. He died for our sins. So why? So if we want to go to hell, we have to step over Jesus. We have to step over people that are moved with compassion. We have to step over the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. We have to step over the Holy Spirit. We have to step over a church like this that's out there saying, no, 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 no. You got a wrong view of him. He's not mad at you. He's not angry with you just the opposite of that he loves you he's pursuing you he wants a relationship with you that's what we're here doing we're here saying no it should be hard for people to go to hell the next thing it says is it says I took on every look at this every sort of servant I became that I might lead those I meet into a God-saved life in other words he didn't just go one way at it. He did whatever he had to do. He was creative. If one way didn't work, he went another way. If somebody shut him down, knew that he was a Christian, didn't build walls and be like, man, forget you. No, he, he kept at it. He found a way to serve people. If you want to be in on it, you're going to have to be creative. You're gonna, you can't give up the first time. You can't give up after one day. You can't give up after, well, you tried to be cool to them, and now in the office, they're working against you. No, you have to keep being creative. You have to keep working hard at becoming whatever servant that you have. Why? So that maybe one, all the mistreatment, all the things you have to work through, the goal is that you might be able to lead one into the life and the love we've experienced in here. And then number seven, he says, I did all of this, all of it, the purpose was, so that they would hear the message. And he says, I wanted to be in on it. You know the big mistake I made with Michaela? Y'all know it already, it's out there. The big mistake was, everything I preached to you about, I did, except number seven. I did everything, I served her, I added value to her, I entered her world, I did everything but I never actually crossed the line into sharing the message with her. Our goal isn't just to do good deeds, be philanthropists, serve so we can say, hey, look at us, you know, we're good. At the end of the day, the job is to introduce them to the loving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's at the end of the day, that's the goal. And we have a lot of people in our life that we've been building relationships with, we've been adding value to, and, and we have to be careful because the truth of the matter is, we could do all of that and miss the whole point that God's placed us in their life. At some point, you gotta cross the line. At some point, you gotta get the ball in the end zone. At some point, again, I'm not talking about inviting to church. It may include that, but it may, it may not include that. At the end of the day, we have to say, I want to be in on it. The, um, a couple years ago, I went on my first uh, mountain climbing trip. And uh, there's five of us that went. We chose Capitol Peak in Colorado, which is the most difficult 14er in Colorado, right outside of Aspen. We 
get to the campsite after about a seven hour hike, 70 pound backpacks, we're exhausted. I'm exhausted, I should say. I'd never even been camping before, just so you know, I'm not an outdoorsman. And we get there, we're overlooking Capitol Peak, which has nice edge leading up to it, nice edge you have to cross to go to the summit. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a mountain that comes to a nice edge, 3,000 foot drop on each side. We're looking at that. There's Capitol Lake, a glacier lake. It's absolutely beautiful. And Travis, a guy that was the most experienced mountain climber in our group, says, hey, let's go bouldering. I'm exhausted. I just made a cup of coffee. And I'm like, no, nah, y'all are good. Go ahead, because we got to be up at 3 in the morning to go summit. And so I'm like, no, I'm good. And so, so Travis... Uh, took my nephew, who I invited on the trip. My nephew, I hadn't been in his life since he was a little boy. He's in his mid-20s now, um, is a Marine. He had been training, and his fiance of three years was unfaithful to him. And when he came back from, from training, he found out uh, that that relationship was over. He is a black belt in jiu-jitsu, black belt in karate. He's 6'4". Uh, he's, a, he's a freak of a person. And I begged him, I begged him, I mean that in a good way, I begged him to just to drive to Cincinnati because I knew what he was capable of. So I hadn't really even talked to him, seen him much in, in 20 years. He drives to Cincinnati just to get him out of what he's going through. I'm like, man, come on with me. So we go to Colorado and my nephew goes with Travis to climb or to, to go bouldering. Well, I didn't know what bouldering was. I thought it meant climbing on rocks, but bouldering means climbing without gear. So there's a mountain uh, across the way that, um, that they go up, they're, they're climbing. And they climb like 20, 30 foot up to a ledge and then um, they get up there, they're looking around and then like 15 foot above that, I think there's a, uh, a cave. So they climb up to that. And Travis and my nephew decide that they don't want to go down the same way, that it'd be easier, safer if they scale the side of the mountain. There's a valley they can just walk down. And so as they're scaling the side of the mountain, they start running into obstacles. They can't go down and they can't go sideways. So incrementally, they keep going up. And it hits them at some point. The sun is setting, sub-zero temperatures at night in this area. They have no water. They have no coats. And they're on the side of a mountain. And they literally have hours before it's completely dark. Maybe, maybe not even that. And so we can talk to them across this valley and it hits us that they're in trouble and uh, that they have decided they're gonna have to climb up and over. This is called Mount Christiana. You can look it up. It's about 600 foot tall. And so they're gonna have to climb up and over. By the time they reach the top, how they're going to make it out. We don't, we, they don't know. We don't know. We're talking about what to do. And they get to about 250 foot up. And Travis, the most experienced guy on our trip, goes to reach for a rock. The rock comes out of the side of the mountain. And we watch him fall and bounce off the side of the mountain 250 foot to his death. We're screaming. We're freaking out. Of course, we're in shock. We run across this valley find Travis. He's, he's definitely gone. And my nephew saw all this close up. I mean, he heard the gruesome details of a person falling to their death. He's in shock and he's screaming at us saying that he can't fill his hands, that, that he doesn't know how much longer he can hang on. 
We've called Mountain Rescue, but Mountain Rescue is saying it's gonna be three hours before they can find a helicopter to get to where we're at, three hours. There's no place to sit down. There's, he is hanging on the face of a mountain. It's by this time completely dark. And he's up there by himself. And we're preparing for the reality that he's not gonna make it. He's saying things like the rock underneath me is crumbling. Um, it's not gonna hold. And we're waiting every single minute. Finally, the rescue team gets there, but they tell us they're not even sure they can get to him. That where he's at, with it as dark as it is, in the condition of the mountain they decided to climb, they may not even be able to get to him. It took them two hours to finally get to where he is. Hypothermia had set in, lost all the toenails on his foot, but he did make it down to safety. We, we went from there. Um, obviously, we spent the night we hike back that next morning, passing the rescue crews and the donkeys that are going to carry our dead friend's body back down uh, the mountain. And, and me and my nephew start to talk. I had never, even though he lived in my home, he had just moved in my home, I talked to him about God. I, I didn't know where he stood with God. So here I am again, doing everything I need to do, but I never was in on it. I never made the point is the message. The point isn't come live with me. The point isn't, you know, get over it. The point is at the end of the day, I got to cross the line and share the message with him. And so he starts to tell me that he did call out to God on the side of that mountain, but the problem was he just feels like he just did it because he was in trouble, that it wouldn't last, it wouldn't mean anything, and, and that God probably knew he wasn't authentic about it. And I told him, I'm like, Caleb, listen, you don't know God. I, I'm like, I do. A lot of things I don't know about God, but one thing I do know is the Bible teaches us that he's a, fa he's a father. And I said, I'm a father. You didn't have a father. I'm gonna tell you, I don't care why my daughters come to me, what the reason is, what they're going through. I'm just glad that they come. And I said, because you don't know that, your picture of God's wrong. I said, the Bible says God is love. And so if you wanna know a little bit about the character and the nature of God, what I want you to do is I want you to go read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter in the Bible. And everywhere you see love, and maybe some of you need to do this today, everywhere you see love, put my Father who is in heaven is not boastful. My Father who is in heaven never fails. My Father who is in heaven keeps no record of wrongs. And I have that conversation with my nephew. He goes and he reads 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He meets God, and today... He is one of the worship leaders in our church, and he wrote a song based on that conversation, Our God Keeps No Record of Wrongs. I'm gonna let them play it for one minute, and then I'll be right back. This is my nephew singing, by the way.
Every eye closed, every head bowed. A few seconds, we'll be out of here. What I learned about both those situations is when the Bible says tomorrow is not promised to any man, life is like a vapor. It's not that I'm here to scare anybody or any of that stuff. That's not, that's in no way what my goal would be because if you get scared into the kingdom of God, you'll be scared out even faster. But what I have learned is I want to be in on it. What I have learned is that we're here right now and if we're present in the moment, maybe you have a wrong picture of God. Maybe you're like my nephew and you have all these things. Well, it's not real or I'm not gonna make it or I've still got this sin or I've still got this issue or I still have this problem or you don't know what I've done or you don't know where I've been. But I want you to know our God keeps no record of your wrongs. If you're here today and you say, Marcus, I'm not right with God. Jesus is not the Lord of my life. You're here today and you'd say, I'm not at peace with God. I've not put my trust in him. And maybe you're here today and you would say, Marcus, I'm a million miles from God. And you would like me to pray for you. Your heart's been pounding. You've been sensing maybe God's wanting to do something in your life and you don't even know exactly what that means, but you know you can't go back after the same life you were living before you showed up here in this service. And you want me to pray for you. You'd say, Marcus, I want peace with God. I need forgiveness. I need a new beginning. I need a new start. You're here saying, I need to put my trust in Christ. I need a relationship with God. My relationship with God is not, is not there. It's not in existence. My God connection is, is, has been broken. And you want me to pray for you. On the count of three, I'm going to invite you to lift your hand. You say, why am I going to lift my hand? I think it's just your way of saying yes to God. You're here today and you'd say, Marcus, would you pray for me? I need to get right with God. I need you to pray for me. I want to be at peace with God. One, two, three. From the front to the back, lift your hand as high as you can. Many hands going up. When you lifted your hand, I want you to keep it up. I want you to put the other hand on your heart and we're all going to pray together. I believe when you lifted your hand, it's a moment of faith where you're saying yes to God. And I believe he sees it. I believe he acknowledges it. And we're going to lead you in a quick prayer. The Bible says you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is God's only son and that he raised him from the dead. And that's how your first step into salvation, into this new God-saved life begins. Let's all say this together. Say, Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross, for paying the price for my sin. I invite you into my heart. I invite you into my life. I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me. I believe that you're God's son that he raised you from the dead. And now I surrender my life to you in Jesus' name. We all said amen.